from TMP to TTNG For sure the care in those tired meme jeans Hella Kinsella and the promise ring Sunny day real estate and rights this spring Prince Twinkle Daddy's help keep the dream alive I constantly thank God for Algernon and Remo Christie front drive Mineral snowing high tide hotel you're and more flip it on quick uh this is episode 35 of the e-word podcast this is kyle recording here in madison wisconsin over there as always co-host ellie in austin texas ellie how are you uh i'm pretty good i got a haircut today um so i'm feeling pretty pretty positive about myself great that 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 post haircut uh lift up and uh we have a very special guest who I'm assuming why you got a haircut for. Uh we have Christian Holden from the Hotel Year on the podcast to talk about their album, The Decade Under the Influence, uh 2014 winner, Home Like No Places There. Christian, we're so stoked to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very perceptive, Kyle. I got a haircut. <laughs> Just so I could have the confidence to ha- do this interview like the camera's not even on. <laughs> uh Christian, where where are you at within? united states right now uh i'm at my house uh in my room at my desk uh in worcester massachusetts so we tend to go on very long on these interviews i know we're on a schedule here but uh before i forget to ask uh what is the hotel you're up to what are you up to um one thing i want to get out of the way is uh you're a professional poker player yes uh uh you know more or less uh professional would mean that i make my sole income from poker and as of late that is uh not really the case uh but i am a serious student of the game and i'm playing in a lot of my free time and and like yeah poker is just like a part of my everyday routine uh for the most part cool um yeah and then the hotel year, uh, is there anything on the books for your, for y'all? Uh, you know, not really, uh, TBH, uh, like we just took a lot of downtime and we're both missing certain aspects of playing music and not missing other aspects of playing music full time. Uh, and yeah, so, so we're just hanging right now. Uh, and, uh working and uh you know 
slowly, if not completely at a halt right now, writing music. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I think there's more anticipation of what we might be doing than there is what we're actually doing. Uh, yeah, I I, I rec- not recently, I guess over a year ago, I put out a tweet uh, that said uh, my psychic uh, says we'll be in the studio within the next six months, and everyone didn't read it and heard we'll be in the studio in the next six months Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and so everyone's like what's up the hotel you're supposed to be in the studio right now i was like i mean if you believe the psychic i don't know i can't i don't know what to tell you but that's what she said she literally said that so i was just reporting (laughs) (laughs) i guess that's what i was kind of alluding to is like there was something with lp3 in the works but would be lp4 oh yeah right yeah yeah because it never goes out um but uh yeah, um, we have some ideas, but it's proven to be a difficult album to write. Maybe both in its like, in like my insistency on one-upping the last things that we've done, and also uh, just m- my life is not like my mind is not wrapped around writing an album right now, and it's hard for me to sort of put myself back in that headspace to do so. Uh, currently so so i've just been like not i've just been sort of like enjoying this time and not thinking that like my entire life exists for me to write the next hotelier album and uh maybe i can sort of just do what do what my life is taking me to do and uh treat that as the thing i should be doing uh so yeah that's that's sort of that's sort of my way of putting it yeah that sounds positive to me it is pretty positive. Yeah, it's not. It's definitely not a bad thing. I've I've uh, I've started enjoying music more than I had been. Uh, uh, I started feeling less threatened by certain music than I had been. Um, you know, being a professional musician, in a way, whether and a lot of musicians might not realize it or just like refuse to talk about it, but like, it is like you're competing. You know, in in on the on this like stage sort of uh with these other people who are all also trying to get in the ears of a number of listeners you know so uh so so whether you are attempting to or not uh the sort of industry and just way that it's all set up means that you are competing for space uh and i don't miss competing for space that was an intense materialist critique of the music industry it's it's real i don't know like like if you if you just like search around to and like just go on the twitter of like uh snail mail or like soccer mommy you'll see like these musicians who are uh now newly big and are like well look at all this shit that sucks you know (laughs) so uh, (laughs) like regularly they're just posting like wow this is annoying uh did you kind of notice that like around the time that home came out or was it after goodness or anything like that? I mean, we're halfway responsible for it too. Like, uh, like prior to our bands getting, I like, like emo is sort of the break in the dam for like the industry to just start like picking up DIY bands and throwing them on industry tours. Uh, well, I guess like, like pop, punk was part of it like it was pop punk but then pop punk was just like sort of just like everyone wanted to be industry and nobody really cared about diy like yeah. everyone cared about diy as long as like 
they subsist like they needed it to exist in order for them to like be a band uh but then as soon as they were pretty much offered industry tours they're like oh yep doing that uh uh like emo just had like emo and i'm referring to emo as like like, like people the umbrella were, term uh, yeah well I'm, I'm referring to it as specifically like diy in the early 2010s which like people were just calling math rock that was diy emo for a lot of it uh or emo revival actually is what a lot of people were calling it uh and then as opposed to like what npr or buzzfeed like in 2013 and 2014 called emo which was like not the same thing uh and like is sort of what is considered emo now now is like that uh, a little bit but also yeah so 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 all those emo bands were like like just diy bands and then just like a couple of them were decided upon as like the important bands of emo by like whatever music media and then uh and then there was just sort of this like entry point for for the industry to start like quickly picking up new diy bands and putting them on industry tours like there was just a way for them to do so uh Mm -hmm. so yeah so 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 that was the start of it sort of and now now there's like almost no scene as far as i know like in the way that there was uh uh, like there's a couple touring bands uh and there's like a couple bands in certain cities but uh for the most part it seems like there's less diy infrastructure in all the cities like i i don't know if i could i mean i guess mom jeans did it but like i don't know if i could book a full u.s tour like i did in 20 in like early 2014 um like yeah like us and oso oso uh back when oso oso was oso 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 uh did a full u.s tour and like it took like seven weeks or something like that so seven weeks of shows um i don't know if i could do that again like certain cities i just don't know if they have the infrastructure but also on some of those shows we played to like six people so like set arguably they didn't have the infrastructure then either but <laughs> uh yeah that's that's really interesting. I feel like that's something that we've been trying to get at like the past like couple episodes of the series. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you kind of articulated it perfectly mm-hmm. uh, with that switch from that really DIY math rock sound to maybe the more like indie rock influence sound that is pretty dominant now. Damn, you nailed it. Uh, and also like the, argue- the industry part, because we left off yeah. basically like when the world is album came out they're playing DIY spots and around when home comes out, it is like the middle of, you know, uh, DIY and then shitty Greg putting DIY bands on real tours for lack of a better term. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shitty Greg also, uh, booked a lot of DIY tours before that. And then he just was, yeah, I don't know. I wonder if it's Greg's fault. Maybe it is. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Twinkle Daddies is Greg's fault, so I mean, we might as well blame everything else on him too. <laughs> I thought Twinkle Daddies was Dad's fault. N- well, uh, Greg and uh, Casey from Hostage Call came yeah. up with the term. Okay, but you could argue that the sound is Dad's fault as well. Okay, weird. <laughs> yeah, Kyle, did you have uh, the other prelim questions? Yeah, so I wanted to do some pre-home like no places there questions for hotel year uh 
so there it doesn't seem like there were many pre-hotelier bands. I know there was one, and I forgot to write down the name, and I just listened to the Washed Up Email podcast, and that was the only place that I'd heard of it. Uh, okay. What, yeah. what was the band called? What depends on... Uh, I'll tell you the brief history. There's actually technically two bands. Okay. Um, so there was like a big scene in uh, central Massachusetts right when I got into high school. Um, and like my freshman, freshman year of high school, I had a, like a pop rock band that was like mostly ripoffs of like MySpace pop rock. Um, oh, and it was yeah. called, yeah, yeah, that's, the, that's where I got all my songwriting chops, which is why I'm a little bit more anthemic or whatever. Uh, yeah. So we had a band called Oregon trail, uh, which my friend came up with just cause he liked the video game Oregon trail and we played some shows. Uh, and then me, Chris, and all these kids that were in like these pretty cool screamo bands uh, started a band called Still We Sleep, which was like, uh, I guess like uh, what's that band called? Uh, they're like techie and uh, British and metalcore. Oh, Enter Shikari. Yeah, we there was an Enter Shikari ripoff band. Uh, <laughs> That's then, also really sick. Yeah, and I I didn't write any of the music for it. I just wrote like some vocal melodies and uh, and uh, lyrics. Um, but it was all of the work of this one dude, Kurt. But then all of them were going to like help me revamp Oregon Trail, which was going to be a pop rock band. Uh, but then it ended up being just Chris uh, and uh, then our friend Zach. Um, who was also making pop rock uh, stuff. Um, and then Sam ended up being our drummer. And Sam had never played drums before in a band. Uh, so this was <laughs> the first project for him. Uh, <laughs> and Sam had just only been in like metalcore and grindcore bands in high school. Yeah. And when we started, we were also a straight edge band. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then that stopped uh, pretty much when we were writing. It never goes out. And uh, that just confirms what I've been saying all along. That yeah. It all comes from hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. Hardcore came before. Well, hardcore came before pop punk. So like every when I was in eighth or ninth grade, every band was a hardcore band. Uh, and then as uh, this is basically how our scene was affected. Every band was a hardcore band. And then fireworks started touring through and. Mm. Uh, everyone was wearing everyone in the hardcore scene was wearing fireworks like sweatshirts and then everyone wanted to start a <laughs> pop punk band also four years strong is from worcester so like four years strong was like this uh like like middle point between hardcore and like newfound glory so, Easy core. so yeah. yeah 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 uh so that was those were the two main influences i think on on the scene that started people making pop punk uh but I had just always been making like pop rock music. Um, so, so then I just was like, all your bands are bad. I'm going to make a better, cooler pop punk band. <laughs> and that's, that's what Hotelier was. That's so sick. I love how like in certain interviews, you can see the roots of that too. Like I remember reading one where you shouted out last lights and I was mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's that. That's like Boston hardcore. Um, yeah, uh, it's Boston. Just, they were all, they were all from, right. uh, central massachusetts they, they were more worcester than they were boston uh Shit, and okay. so uh and there, there was actually really as far as i know no boston scene also it was like Whoa. it was like central mass or it was merrimack valley uh 
and then like i guess it was also uh like uh what's that there's like a southeastern area of massachusetts kind of near the cape that had a scene as well where like half-hearted hero was from uh but for the most as far as i knew it was like central mass and merrimack valley and merrimack valley was where like the hardcore scene was where like anchors up and like edge day is held every year and stuff yeah yeah so would you say that like hotelier kind of came about as a reaction to all these like hardcore kids starting pop punk bands and uh you just feeling like the the songwriting wasn't like going far enough. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I had I had always just written that style of music, and uh, and like we definitely, uh, I've I've yeah I've described that most of my like starting to write was just like most of the effort that I put into it was motivated by me just being like, okay, I'm I'm unenthused. I think this is bad. I am going to try to do it better. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, I saw a lot of those early tours and like shows where with Bo- uh, that band Born Without Bones, and like that band is like a really good example of like you know like they're like poppy, but it's also like something to chew on. Uh, yeah. So that like makes a lot of sense too that you were buddies with them. Scott, well, there was just crossover also at that time. So Scott, Scott has always Scott the the person who writes mainly for Born Without Bones. Uh, has always sort of been the hotelier's fifth member. Uh, He just sort of like understood what we were doing and liked it. Uh, And I was also in the original lineup for Born Without Bones. Uh, So I was playing bass in Born Without Bones when they started. And so when we would go on those tours, it would be like uh, Scott, it would be like we'd play hotelier set and then we'd play as Scott's band uh, also um, on some of those tours. Mm, Cool. Yeah. So, going into Home Like No Places there, uh, previously you had uh, It Never Goes Out, and I feel like that record was a little bit more uh, along the lines of, like, Ladderman. Uh, that's sort of, like, really anthemic, melodic uh, punk sound. Like, not quite pop punk, but not quite, like, uh, straight-up punk. Yeah. Um, and... I feel like you can still sort of see some of that in home, like no place of the home, like no place, but there was like a big shift, um, towards something that was maybe a little bit more atmospheric, uh, and a little bit more like angular. Um, Mm -hmm. was that just kind of like the natural evolution of the songwriting or was there like a specific influence to that? Well, uh, yeah, it just, it was just about the way that the albums were written. Uh, if you listen to, uh, if you were to listen to the demos of It Never Goes Out, uh, a lot of them, like it would sound actually more like Home Like No Place Is There than It Never Goes Out ended up sounding like. Um, so there would be songs that I had, like like Our Lives and Make a Sad Boring Movie was much slower. Uh, and uh, like the way that the chords were structured was actually so that it's it felt, I think, a lot bigger. Uh, but we just changed it. Uh, Cause we wrote, cause we would like bring an idea to the band and the band would like restructure the song. Uh, and like, yeah, Chris and I were really into Ladderman. Uh, and like a lot of the other members were just like, like not, didn't know that much about like emo, I guess, or weren't listening to that much emo. And we're mostly listening to like, uh, like D4 and, uh, and Ooh. Ladderman. And, uh, so then the albums just started sounding 
that way or like that album started sounding that way and then home like no places there was actually written because like nobody i think we had all like moved or something like we were all just living in different places and i was sort of like okay if i don't write this record we won't have a sec we won't just we just won't have a second hotelier record uh so uh i ended up writing most of home like no places there uh and then bringing it to the band and because uh i had much more touch on that record uh it it just ended up sounding like uh it never goes out maybe would have sounded a little bit more like um but it was also just a darker record and the songs just sort of matched that and it was just a progression of what i was doing on some of the songs on uh it never goes out but yeah not all of them right like i feel like night rats club on it never goes out is kind of like the natural precursor to a lot of the themes that went into uh home like uh with regards to you know talking about mental health or uh other themes like gender and uh even like the approach to to politics seems a little bit more conceptual than the, like the grassroots community stuff that was going on in like our lives yeah and in our lives is not even grass it's i was it's just about where i was at the time like it never goes out it was written when i was in high school and i was reading tons of crime think uh and like Ooh, whenever yeah. when every day i'm like confronting teachers about like what anarchism is and and like how this like this like structure that i'm like living in every day is not fair then it's like it's more like youthful and more like rebellious and more like like middle finger to the face or whatever uh but like uh home like no places there is like post me graduating and like seeing uh like then then like sort of maintaining relationships and sort of all of us figuring out what we're doing with our lives it's much more existential time for all of us and uh and that's sort of like the inspiration for what uh all of the the content's about so like while like it never goes out it's like yeah we're gonna uh, we're gonna change the world and then home like no places there's like oh damn this is harder than we thought <laughs> uh right yeah it became much more like personal is political i think yes i feel like every article that was coming out as home was coming out and uh it, it kept it kept linking to your tumblr post that ended with apparently we're an emo band now and kind of like prepping people <laughs> for like the content um i don't mean to like look into that too much but like were you feeling a little uh vulnerable about one being an emo band and also just having an album with that content coming out like was that feeling like that could be like alienating to fans of the band or anything no because you didn't have that many fans uh yeah. <laughs> and I didn't feel like I owed them anything because uh, sure. we were still just having fun with it. Uh, I think that was just like sort of tongue in cheek, just like figured, not yeah. not like apparently we're an emo band now, but it was just like apparently we're an emo band now, you know. So like uh, and 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 I think at the time it was like we were included on uh, it was like I wrote that after BuzzFeed made us on the first the first thing, the first ever like Internet music media post about bands of our genre was uh 2013 buzzfeed did a thing that was like 10 bands you should listen to if you're desperately missing emo bands or something like that uh and we were on it and that got a lot of traction and that 
like a, allowed us to have momentum going into home like no places there uh, so it was like kind of responding to that and kind of responding to the actual content of the record which was much more an email record than uh then it never goes out um yeah um i guess getting into like when the album comes out can you tell us like the official story about the album art I think somewhere said that it was photoshopped and I don't know if that was true or not. And then some people said like you got busted when you were going to paint that shit on the house. Yeah. Uh, so all of this is true. Um, so I'll just give you the whole story. Sweet. Um, Zach, the member of our band uh, that we had started it with the person who was also writing pop songs. Uh, we had done some tours uh prior to Home Like Metal Pieces there with Born Without Bones and with uh, um, State Lines, which was the pre-Oso Oso band. Um, and Zach was just having a miserable time. Zach was two years younger than us, had dropped out of high school to start touring with us, um, and just was was having just a real hard mental time uh, playing, you know, small shows. He, he's, he was the most, like, you know, I want to, I want to be a career musician than all of us. So like getting to go on tour and then realizing that it's like not glamorous, uh, and that he like quit school to do on these, this sort of not glamorous stuff, I think was coming down hard on him. Plus a lot of life stuff. So he quit. And in, I guess in 2013, I had sort of come up with this idea for an album art and thought Zach's house was like the best house to do it on. Uh, but Zach specifically also because Zach Zach's house had been foreclosed on uh, by a bank. Uh, so we were just like, all right, this house belongs to no one besides the bank. Like this would be sick. Let's do it. Uh, so we got a bunch of like washable kids paint. Uh, and I borrowed my friend Allie's dad's ladder and like brought it to my house and then woke up at 3 AM, uh, walked like a mile with all of this stuff, uh, to get to Zach's house and then just started painting on it because we wanted to take the shot uh, at sunrise. So I did paint the words on the front of the house. Um, I had sort of researched, I, like at the time, I think, I forget if I had already lived in a squat at this point, uh, but I had done some research on squats in the US and like like the ways in which squatters are protected. So like I knew that if the police showed up, I could just tell them the last owner and they wouldn't know that the house was foreclosed on. So like the police showed up and were like, Hey, the neighbors are complaining about this. What's up? And I was just like, Oh, it's my friend's house. And then he was like, okay, who's the owner? And I was like, Leona Shaw. And he's like, all right, you're fine to do this. Uh, just, uh, take it down when you're done. And we are like, okay. <laughs> uh, so he just did it. Uh, and then, but like, we didn't finish it in time for sunrise. Uh, so we had to leave it overnight and the police got even more mad and the neighbors got even more mad and Zach's mom, I guess, got mad. Uh, but oh. Zach was cool with, but Zach was cool with us doing it. Zach said we could do it and like, kind of didn't tell me that his mom was mad. Um, but it was just, I guess, frustrated that the neighbors were just calling her being like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, cause it's like suburban, you know, suburban part of like homeowners association land. Yeah, yeah, just like people people are just like disturbed. If people are disturbed by like the the like the like sort of uh what's the what's the break the uh the like the sort of spell of suburbia then they're going to uh they're going to be disturbed when there's like 
paint on the front of the house. Uh, so, so yeah. And then the police called us the next day. They're like, you have to take this down. So we took a bunch of shots the next morning and then washed it off. And then we looked at the photos, uh, which were taken in f- film camera with like a, I, I don't remember the millimeters of cameras, but a small one. Um, and it didn't come out good at all. Um, we were like, damn. Uh, so, uh, so then we went back with a medium format camera that we took with film and uh, did uh, end up photoshopping the text from the last house on to that one. So it's like, yes, we did it. And also, yes, the album art, the initial, like the album art that is the official album art is photoshopped because we just couldn't do it again. We actually called the police and we're like, hey, yeah, we did the painting on the house. We're going to do it again. And they were, they like called us back and they were like, we know that your friends don't own the house anymore. So if you do that, we're we'll just going to arrest you. And we're like, okay, sounds good. We're not going to do it. <laughs> uh, uh, so so we just took a photo of it and had to Photoshop it. Yeah. And now people like to visit that house. Yeah. Yeah. Someone emailed us and we're like, hey, I'm going to be in town. I want to visit it. And I refuse to tell people. Like people can figure it out, but they won't find out from me. Even though the people that live there are like super sweet. Uh, here's a great story about uh, the people who live there, actually. So the photo was taken by my friend Matthew Laverne, who is like uh, went to high school with us. Uh, is actually the reason that I found out about about all the bands that I know, like emo and uh, and indie rock stuff, because he was the older cousin of like my best friend in high school who introduced me to all this music. So he's responsible for me even being into music the way I am. Yeah, he was at a bar uh, having a drink, and he's sitting next to this guy. He's like, "Yeah, I just bought a house in Charlton." Uh, He's like, oh, cool, where? And he named the road and he was like, oh, damn. Did you, what, did you buy the White House on the corner? And he was like, yeah. He's like, oh my God. And it was this dude just like, he was just sitting next, the the dude who took the photo was sitting next to the dude who just bought the house. uh, (laughs) uh, The (laughs) home place is their house. And he was like, yo, I have a crazy story to tell you and told us all about it. And he was like, wow, that's really relieving to know because all of the neighbors were like coming over and telling us that like our house might get vandalized and like, like we were kind of freaked out, but this like makes so much more sense. Uh, so that was cool. And then when the album came out and I had the album art, I went over and I like gave them a copy and was like, Hey, uh, I heard that you met Matthew, just wanted to like introduce myself and let you know that your house is like on this album that's doing pretty well. (laughs) Uh, And they were really sweet about it. And like, I've heard that people have visited the house and they've like come out and like showed them the record and like talked about the record with them. And they've been like really sweet about it, but uh, I don't want to push it too much on them. And uh, yeah, that's really cute. Yeah, (laughs) extremely cute. (laughs) Um, I have a dumb question. Uh, why uh, did you make? I think n- I already know the answer. Like, <laughs> why did you decide to make no place one word? Because I've never like seen it that way or anything. Uh, yeah, just because it would then be there's no place like home, backwards. Uh, otherwise it would just be there's place no like home. Uh, okay, backwards, and that doesn't make as much sense. Also, just stylistically, it looked cooler. Uh, yeah. Did you know I that, thought- Ali? Is that what I you did. thought? Okay. Yeah. Um, the, it's similar to like when everyone was like, yo, you're, you're depressed. That's you're depressed, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, what a mistake. <laughs> like part. Jade, Jade from Osa said, yo, when I heard that, I thought, wow, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I always liked it. I thought it was just like kind of this like deadpan wordplay inserted into an otherwise very real song. And I, I thought that added a little bit of like much needed levity to an album that was sometimes like crushingly sad. So I always liked it. Yeah, that's just that's fine. Yeah, I think it's not the most uh, it's just it's just like ham fist poet kind of stuff that I, that I don't. I don't know that that's that that I I get is really corny. So I don't really have thoughts any which way I wrote it. I I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, so the singles are coming out. I remember like I think Housebroken was premiered on AV Club. Um, Sounds right. And uh, other places were doing like huge premieres, and it just seemed like the worlds were colliding, and this was going to be like a much bigger release than anyone who was following the band or the scene in general could have anticipated. Uh, was that something you were like aware of at the time? Or Chris says, Chris says we were, I don't remember. I think, uh, I think that there was like, I think I remembered there. I remembered feeling like there's potential for this to, to do well. And I think this record's really good. And like specifically at the time, because we were just straight, a like central mass scene band, like, uh, everybody that was hearing the record ahead of time was just like, fuck, this is huge. And I was like, thank you. That's nice. Uh, but I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't anticipate that. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what I expected, but, um, it definitely was nice, uh, when it started doing well, uh, housebroken initially, I think came out as a, as like a solo video that I had done. And I don't know if, uh, AV club released that. I think the, the single, Singles were uh, started with uh, the scope of all this rebuilding, and then uh, your deep rest, and then uh, life and drag. Uh, but housebroken might have come out right before it. The whole album came out. I don't remember. Yeah, I think I think that sounds right because housebroken was the first song from the record that I heard. So I think that makes sense. Okay. Um, and then by the time it's out, needle drop and pitchfork are putting out reviews for it. Uh, Kyle. I didn't realize this, but Kyle pointed out that the the genius.com entry on the album is like insanely active. Like if you go and look at the annotations, they're just like miles long. That's um, cool. I've never checked yeah. that out actually. That's sweet. Well, there's people like correcting each other too. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's like really nerdy, but it's also like interesting to like watch people like try and like one up each other with like, oh, but in this thing, Christian said this. Here's the truly deeper meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I feel like, just like from my read of you through these like 38 minutes, uh, Christian, that you're the type of person who feels like any interpretation of art is like valid. But how does it how does it make you feel to have like so many people uh, projecting their own personal uh, feelings onto the album, considering that's, it's such a personal record? Yeah, I mean that's. That's what makes the big bucks to BH. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> like if, but like to be honest, like I feel, I feel, uh, I feel good that like uh, enough people are like the songs are good enough that people uh, feel as though uh, they can like. Sort of what happens with music, uh, specifically pop music, is you write a song that. Uh, sort of like mesmerizes and hypnotizes uh in a way like that, that like that's what pop structure does it like has tension and release and um i think i actually think that 
there's probably some strong similarity between that and hypnotism. Uh, and then you're sort of, you have like the listener in this state to like whatever they're feeling when you've sort of locked them in, uh, is now what the song means to them. And, uh, because they're in their own mind having this experience with the album. So like, it's inevitable and I can't expect that anything else would happen. Um, and like, uh, the process of me writing those songs was just like me, exp- like, uh, an expulsion of like feelings of, of, of things. So like when it's out, uh, I don't imagine it's like mine anymore. So, so it all just feels like the natural thing that would happen. And, uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but that is the reason that y'all stopped playing Housebroken Live, right? Mm-hmm. Because people were interpreting it to be about uh, uh, domestic abuse when it was ostensibly a political song. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that was the worst written song. Like, uh, there was, like, some... I forget who it was. Some podcast that, like like, wanted to just shit on it for whatever reason. And they were like, look, this band's... A- like a piece of shit that call women dogs and i was like okay that's not the point but yo uh, what yeah uh yeah i just didn't care but then like someone sent it to me and then i like found them on twitter and was like hey if you want to talk to me about the song like i'm willing to talk about it i don't think you're right about like this interpretation and then they were just like whoa a name searcher you searched your name on twitter and like uh and then Ooh. found us like what a what a self-absorbed human you are and i was just like all right you guys are miserable humans uh that's so fucking gross wow it doesn't matter like they just sucked but uh (laughs) but like yeah it was that and then it was like the combination of just like we had i mean it was it was a weird situation but there are these people these fans of ours that whose opinion we looked up to and they had a problem with it and so we were just like all right uh you have a problem with it uh we're we were we were really attempting specifically me was really attempting to like balance the gift of being like a person with power in the music scene uh, and a person who like people are giving social capital to and handling that like as responsibly as I possibly could. Um, Because uh, just like uh, in that time, there was just a lot of, there was not a lot of, but there was like bands who were apolitical and didn't care. And I thought that was annoying. And then there were bands that were political. And whenever they were like, uh, they were like confronted about something that they did that was kind of sucky. They would just be like, they would just like ignore it or like take super offense to it. And it was just like, you like, you don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was frustrating. So it was just like frustrating to see nobody do it right. And then like, also be involved in like activist scenes where a lot of us were thinking about power all the time. And uh, I just had a lot of people that, you know, were there beside me to help me think about how to be uh, semi-famous uh, within a subgenre of a, you know, like the subgenre of a subgenre or whatever. Um, and just like really handle the role of being like having a public persona and do it responsibly. Um, so yeah, that was just, that was just a decision that I had made where I was just like, okay, this fan has a problem with the song. Um, the things I could do are like, the options are like, ignore that person because I have the power to be able to, or like give power to 
a fan to have control, um, have some sort of control over um, a project that they are invested emotionally invested in. Uh, so I just made the decision because one, I thought that song sucked already and uh, was like a hiccup on the record. And two, because like it was, it had harmed some people and made other people feel, I don't know, uh, uneasy about it's just like poorly worded uh, metaphor or whatever or allegory. Um, so I just was like, yeah, I don't want to, not going to play it. Thank you for, that was a really in-depth response. I appreciate that <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just felt like it just felt too easy to be able to say, well, all these other people like it, so I'm not going to. But like, it just felt like if it's a gray area, either decision is right. So let's just do the one that like makes some people long and other people better instead of making some people harm and other people happy. feels like longing right. plus someone not being harmed is better than happy and other people being harmed. <laughs> That's always been one of my favorites on the record. Uh, but that, that response really kind of like uh, illuminated why you made that decision. So mm -hmm. I appreciated it. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, do we want to do track by track? Yeah. Okay. So an introduction to the album. I feel like, sorry, one of the strongest decisions uh, production-wise that was made about this album was instead of having that atmospheric build and then just immediately going into kind of like something more explosive, you start out with just the voice and the guitar cutting through the mix. And in a lot of ways, because that goes on for so long, I feel that makes it more powerful than if you just went through uh, All Guns Blazing. Um, was that the way the song was written, like, from the get-go? Yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, I just once messed up trying to play Blackbird, uh, and then uh, <laughs> and then uh, that song was written, and I was just like, this sounds like the first song on a record, uh, and then it became the first song on the record. Um, <laughs> that's sort of how it, how it came to be. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot about in album writing. Uh, I think about pacing, and I think about... Uh, how you lead somebody into the record and uh, the first song in the record starting that way is like a, is like a, a sort of like disruptive thing for the listener and sometimes and disrupting the listener's expectations is often uh, like a important tool. Uh, so, so yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of ways in which I couldn't explain album writing when I was writing home, like no places there that I could uh, by the end of writing goodness. Uh, so, so I sort of just like, a lot of this is just like I intuitively thought this is a great way to start the record. And now I can sort of put words to why that is, I think. But um, yeah, uh, there's like one moment on the lyric sheet of the song that I feel kind of uh, kind of put me in like the headspace for that for the album. It's the line will show me the honest, proper way to disarm predatory gaze. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that that that's a turning point because a lot of bands in the genre kind of write from the perspective of an underdog and uh i feel like with this line the hotelier was establishing itself as a band that was writing from the point of view of someone with the power to protect the underdog and i think that is a, a lot of the reason why people latch on so heavily to this record huh Never thought of that. Cool. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Kyle, do you have thoughts on this song? 
I mean, there's no better opener. Uh, I think one right. thing that people all love is the exclamatory fuck. Uh, was <laughs> yeah. was was that like off the cuff? Um, yeah, I think a lot on that record. I was just playing with the uh, like the room that we were in for vocals was small, and I just really liked uh, like room mic sound. So so I think. Uh, so I think the like it like my voice like sort of falls away from the mic and then I scream into the room, uh, and I just thought that was a like uh, it just pleased my ears so I just did it. I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and like people post to our emo all the time and like, what's your favorite like one liner or like line in a song? And people say I slept for years on end. Fuck, like it. It I can't imagine with with it without it there. So yeah, it's funny. Yeah, there's no, a sorry. wait. Sorry, going sorry, back. Go there's a. My Instagram's private, uh, but uh, if you go back pretty far uh, in my Instagram, there's like a video from that somebody took at a at a show we played on our first tour, and nobody knew that song yet. And because nobody knew the song yet, I wasn't saying fuck because it just sounds funny if I just do it myself. Um, so there's this person that was like singing really out of key, and then the song drops, and they're the only person in the room. They go fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah it's just a pretty fr- funny video that i have that uh i should find a way to get off instagram um so the song kind of builds to this huge climax um you know the the instrumentals come in and it ends with uh i had a chance to construct something beautiful and i choked and the this is like when you push your voice uh, to the breaking point for like the first time on the on the record, and I I feel like that moment just provides so much momentum going into the next song, which is like much more like fast paced and anthemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so what what specifically do those last lines mean? Um, it's a response to uh, it never goes out as an album, sort of uh, where it's like. It's a response. It's like a setting a tone of the difference between it never goes out and home like no place is there. Uh, like there's this like momentum from uh, it never goes out, which is sort of like we're going to change the world and we're going to like create something beautiful. Uh, and then the end line of the first song to set the tone for home like no place is there is to say, I choked. Uh, this is not that. This is not that mood. Uh, this mood is different. This mood is like the fallout of believing in that idea. Um, yeah. And, uh, I just want to uh, say the genius annotation hasn't is like so off then. <laughs> and I like that. So with that interpretation in mind, leading right into you cut our ropes and left the umbilical. Yeah. Like I feel like that, that kind of thematic like connection, uh, basically like cutting yourself free from the past record. Uh, that makes it like way more powerful in context. Damn. Yeah, I feel like the placement of every song on this record feels very deliberate, and having a slow opener followed by like a total fucking like barnstormer like scope, uh, mm-hmm. real strong choice. Cool. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> um, I also feel like this is like one of the more pop punk songs on the record, if that makes sense. Word. It was actually so like the the member. I also at for a long time thought it was the best song in the record, uh, but it was a uh, it was that was the one song I think of uh, that I can think of of the ones 
of the songs on the album that Chris wrote the the music for. Uh, so that makes sense. Chris Chris is the person that was that was more pop punk and like in punk and hardcore bands before before Ho- uh, Hotelier. So he wrote the instrumentals for that song, and that's probably why. Yeah. Word. I really like the noticeable like guitar leads on this one. They're like played on like the lower strings, and it's and like like the tones are like really punchy and stuff. That's one of my favorite parts about the song, and like like the kind of like the the call and response sort of like gang vocal thing going on too is. I think that's also kind of like a pop punk thing too. That because I also thought this was like a pop punk song. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that was that's like sort of. Uh... A thing about pop punk that I appreciated uh, a lot was gang vocals. Uh, I mean, I thought that they could be done corny and they could feel like uh, like uh, some British pub vibe. Uh, <laughs> but like, but like, there's some like sense of camaraderie within that that I think is powerful. That is like an appealing aspect of pop punk to me. So I so I used it a lot on that record, uh, and uh, but I was trying to always use it in a way that didn't feel like a British pub uh, and always sort of, uh, yeah, yeah. That just, that just had the vibe of, of that. Uh, but uh, had the vibe, I don't know, had a different vibe, the way that I wanted it to be, uh, the way that I wanted group vocals to feel. Sick. The one line when you forgot the words to our song, when you can't remember names, it's been too long. Is, are those lines outwardly directed or self-directed? Uh, let me think. Because I haven't thought about the words to this album in a while. Oh uh, yeah, no, they're outwardly directed. I think. Funny thing about this song, uh, there was a. I think it was uh, Noisy did an interview with Chris Caraba, um, <laughs> and it was like uh, of Dashboard, and he was like, Chris Caraba of Dashboard listens to new emo bands and tells us what he thinks. Uh, and Chris Crabble. Oh, I remember this. this. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Crabble listened to this song, and couldn't tell that this song started with a chorus. Uh, and he just because he was so used to like the verse has to be the first thing, but the song does kind of start with a chorus and then goes into a verse, and then goes into a chorus. And he was like, "This is a weird song because the verse is more punchier than the chorus." <laughs> and I was just like, That's because. <laughs> the chorus starts the song. Yeah, it was it was just like a weird, weirdly structured song. But uh, yeah, it was just funny that it was just a funny take from like somebody who's like was I would consider like a obviously a professional songwriter. Uh, yeah, that's also really cute. <laughs> and then obviously we go to in framing, which I think the one of the main reasons the song is interest is, is interesting is because um, it feels fast paced, but it also feels was a lot more subdued mm-hmm. so coming after uh you know kind of like a more punchy song it simultaneously like keeps the momentum going while like taking the intensity down a notch mm-hmm. um and then the decision to like add in that acoustic guitar lower in the mix uh mm-hmm. what was that like a was that a studio thing or well i wrote this is a song that I I remember I remembered when I wrote this song. Uh, I had a I remember having an NV three uh, when I wrote this song. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was in my room, staying up super late. It was like five a.m. or something, and it, the sun had just started to come up. And then I wrote that, and I was really stoked on exactly what you were just describing, where it's just fast, but it's subdued. 
uh, and uh, I had to like I like ran down to my basement so that I wouldn't wake anybody up. And I was playing it on an acoustic guitar. Uh, so I think in my head just heard it on an acoustic guitar. And when we were recording it, like it didn't sound like palm palm mutes. It sounded like strumming, like acoustic uh, acoustic guitar. So uh, so I just wanted to do that at some point. It just the palm muting itself didn't sound right. Yeah. This this might be a very very weird comparison, but fast paced mixed with subdued. Like the vibe, it kind of reminds me of is the song "Breaking the Habit" by Linkin Park. <laughs> Sick. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know whether you think it was like weird to hear that comparison, but uh... yeah, that makes sense. I know I know what you're talking about. Uh, I, it's it's a it's a vibe that lots of musicians use probably at some point or another, uh, and you and you find and uh, it's generally a song that like at least perks my ears when it's like fast and subdued uh it's a you know there's, there's a song uh there's a song on the tegan and sarah album sainthood uh the ocean uh that does the same thing uh uh it's fast paced and subdued and i really like that song right um and i also think here is the part of the album where kind of like broader influences start coming out like uh, I remember reading a lot of reviews of this album that were comparing it to the weaker thans. And this is like one of the first songs that kind of like peaked that vibe for me. Was, was that a conscious influence? Oh yeah. It's one of the few bands that we all agreed upon liking. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, it's just, just the general wordiness of the weaker thans was something that, uh, was an influence on me and sort of made me feel like, okay, this is cool. Like, not all choruses need to be choruses. Not all choruses need to repeat. Uh, we don't need like, and I was always frustrated with that. I couldn't fit enough words in a song anyway. And I was always worried that our music would come off as too poppy. Uh, so, so something that the weaker than's taught me that you can do is you can, you can stop your songs from being too poppy by making them less accessible by being more wordy. And I, I wanted to keep a distance from being too accessible uh, because then you lose depth uh, or you lose the ability for somebody to enter the, to the depth of your music. Um, and like there are bands that I know that um, are super deep and make really deep, incredible songs. Uh, but because they sound, uh, no, uh, I would take, maybe take that back. But uh, but like there there are ways in which you, can lose lose the bridge of depth that somebody takes from like listening to a song the first time and being like oh this sounds cool to like going on genius and saying like no this song's about this because i've listened to it ten thousand times uh you know so uh i was always looking for a way to bridge that uh yeah word um and of course you know, the subdued song is followed by the anthem of the record. How do you feel about the fact that your deep rest is kind of like, quote unquote, the song? Like, Didn't expect it, I think. Mostly because, because it's it, so dark. Um, no, because uh, it uses some chords that I would never that I never intuitively use. <laughs> kind of the like the like the vibe, like. Uh, it, it makes sense when it resolves with the chorus, uh, but like I didn't think the verse was like appealing, and so I didn't think it would be a good song or a song that people liked. Uh, and then it was just like the hit, so I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, it is dark. It's a dark song. Uh, uh, 
it's about uh well i guess I, I don't know that i should say what i feel like it's about i always wonder if i should but i just had a i had a suicidal partner at the time uh and sort of every sort of every day sort of felt like i could uh wake up and uh she'd be dead and uh, so it was like it was like basically w- the, me like sort of like spilling out the thoughts that I was like, okay, this could happen at any point and this is how it's going to play out when it does. Uh, so, uh, luckily, I mean, she's great now. She lives like a very good life, uh, and, uh, like super happy for her. Um, but yeah, it was like, uh, it was a real rough time and, uh, taught me a lot about how to be, how to support people. Uh, because I was in some ways enabling it and, uh, uh, didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, I've been in that situation before, and I've also, like, lost a lot of friends. Uh, like, a bit earlier this year, uh, I lost a really good friend of mine, Matt, from Darkle. Um, and uh, this this is, you know, one of those songs that I, f- I feel, like, really captures that feeling uh, with a sense of authenticity. So it's interesting to hear that it's almost, like, creative uh, nonfiction. Um, yeah. Yeah, it just uh, felt so. It felt so real. Like it felt like I was like every like for there was like a like month period where I was just like, all right, like like it's it'll it's gonna like one day I'm just gonna wake up and I sort of have to prepare myself for that. And so it felt entirely real. Uh, and uh, you know, it didn't happen, and it wasn't as you know, it just it wasn't going to be a surprise if it happened. And uh, so it felt just entirely real. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, and one. Of- the song one of the lyrics on this song that i feel gets overlooked but i think kind of hits at uh, a core part of the experience is a conscious erasure of working class background where despair trickles down i feel like that's something that not enough people talk about uh in songs uh when you come from poverty the fact that depression is extremely hard to to treat because you either don't have the ability to diagnose it or you don't have the ability to treat it so Sorry, yeah, it also just uh, it also just is like a point to say like I could see why this person was depressed and a lot of it had to do with or maybe we could just say a lot of it was exacerbated exactly by the fact that uh, her family was working class. Um, it didn't feel like like at that time it at like that period in in the world like depression was just like no it is not uh it is not a socially um it's not a thing that you are conditioned into uh it is just a chemical imbalance which is like it's obviously a chemical imbalance like like initiated by all these other like life circumstances like uh to me it seems pretty obvious that like depression while it can be maybe purely uh purely uh chemical yeah yeah um it seems so clearly also linked to class and oppression and quality uh, of life yeah exactly yeah so in this and in this person's particular uh situation it was so clearly that uh that yeah yeah i i just love that the tying together of the themes of intense political analysis and intense uh personal experience in the song, I feel like that's what really makes it like stick out uh, for me personally. I would really like to clarify 
uh, I called in sick from your funeral. Um, because I've heard people say that it's like the funeral made you so upset that you called out from work, but I always interpreted it as, uh, you couldn't bear to go to the funeral. So you called out sick from it. Like, yeah, metaphorically. yeah, there's, yeah. there's some, uh, there's some word issues maybe in that sentence, which I would love to ignore, uh, because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's the latter in this case. Uh, when I wrote it, it was the latter. Uh, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Bleep it out. Yeah. yeah. Then might have learned how to swim, never taught how to drown. That's uh, like, I think, the most important line in the song. Yeah. Exactly. Is that I, I always interpreted that as, you know, you were never taught how to deal with, like, the most difficult times in your life because society doesn't, uh, condition people to be able to handle situations like this. Yeah, it's just a, a commentary about how we just how we talk about mental illness and um, yeah how it, how it's how it's talked about how it's diagnosed. Uh, it's it's better now. It's definitely different now. Uh, but uh, the like like it seemed like only the super left were talking about that uh, right. like mental illness as something that wasn't. Uh, also tied into politics uh, and it felt completely wrong uh, to me that that was the case. Damn, that was ahead of the time. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of smart people around me when I was writing this record. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to squeeze in here that like, like that like little line there like was pretty, it was like a pretty good example of how like you can write something that's two lines that has tons of meaning behind it and how like some lyricists need to write like an entire song but like you can condense something into two lines um yeah. it's it just i really admire that because it seems like more lyrical than like you know journaling and call those lyrics but, like how did you practice that or like it was it just something that you were going for this whole time and oh i mean uh with my method it's just like I'm saying enough things that one of them is going to be probably pretty good. Uh, th there are better bands that do that, that thing better, uh, where they say very little, uh, and are able to capture so much with that, uh, that I think that I think they don't, they don't add the filler. Uh, and so, and I, I like admire that more sometimes. Um, but, um, yeah, I think it's just a case of I'm saying so much that eventually, I will say something <laughs> right. But also it's just it's just the way my brain works. Uh it I don't think of it as a particularly special skill. It's kind of annoying to people sometimes, or at least at the time, like uh I had dated somebody where they would like describe what's going on in their brain. Like we would just stay up all night and talk about what's going on in this person's brain and I would help like contextualize it. And they would say something and I'd be like, Oh, that's like this other like thing that happens in the world. Uh, and my brain just sort of goes to that. I don't know if it's because like, uh, I don't know. It, it, I don't know. It, it, my, my brain just is always thinking about complex systems in the world. And it's part, part, part of it's just like being a Taoist, I think where, uh, like I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about like the world is organized in natural rhythms and that there are certain like complex systems that are recreated in in different areas of the world and trying to connect how those things work so that you can address them the same way. And so my brain just is is constantly seeing like like networks of things and then just like seeing them again and being like oh that's just that. So 
like so yeah i think i think that helped me write despite never in my life had i been a writer um uh like like my poetry is all is all really bad um and like the creative writing that i've done is not very good at all and somehow my lyrics came out well (laughs) (laughs) and like i think that's just i don't know i always think of the wonder years as a band that writes it just takes them a million words to make one point and i feel Mm -hmm. like that like one line that we're just talking about like that would have been like an album like it would have taken them like entire album to make that point (laughs) and like that's great like they're really good at that style so it's just like Mm -hmm. a matter of style and preference and taste right yeah i try to not i try to not despite being as wordy as i am i try to not say the same thing twice uh i don't know if that worked or not but i'd try I think it worked. I think it allows you to address a lot of different ideas in one song uh, yeah. without like spilling over thematically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if this record was uh, consciously made with like vinyl in mind, but Among the Wildflowers feels like a perfect side one closer. Yeah, it wasn't made with vinyl in mind. I didn't. I don't. Right. I didn't. I didn't have any vinyl before this record came out. So. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the I feel like the guitar line on this song is like probably the most like achingly like melodic moment on the record, and I obviously the I I like this song just as much as anything else, but it feels like kind of uh, I wouldn't say n- that it doesn't fit in because it does, but it, it feels like the reason it stands out is because it has like this much more melodic structure to it. Yeah, uh, the chorus is a chorus in that song. And uh, it's the first, right. the first one where it is, I think, uh, where it's like purely a repeated chorus, um, and it's just like, let's see, I think the first song on the record, no, maybe not. I, I, so my friend Ryan, who plays in this band, crying, was saying that if you take a, ton, there's a ton of hotelier songs where you just like play them with different instruments at different velocities, and it's just a country song. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> That's one of them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Two things lyrically in the song. Uh, one post Shakespearean skull. Uh, solid Hamlet reference. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, why did why did you put uh, this line in the song? Oh, honestly, at this point, I don't know. Uh, I, c- I couldn't tell you right now. Uh, I'd have to like reread the lyrics and then like think a lot about what I was trying to say because I mean a lot oh, of this because okay. because I mean a lot of this is like a lot of the way that I wrote lyrics for this album and goodness uh, was meditate on an idea then like sleep deprive myself and then write kind of stream of consciousness to like a set cadence uh, and so uh, so yeah so like a line like that would just be like a lot of lines I can't like particularly explain. I can just be like, well, I write, I wrote that. That's pretty cool. Uh, uh, so I would just have, I would just have to sit with it for a second. And I would have for some lines, I would have just as much of an opinion as y'all would, because it just like feels so disconnected from what I was attempting to do maybe because I didn't, I was just like kind of like trying to like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, well, I, the the reason I asked was because um, I feel like the first four songs are kind of building up to 
like a tragedy in the Shakespearean sense. Okay. And yeah. then the back half of the record is kind of uh, like mulling over the fallout of it. And, and I think that this line is kind of uh, I mean, my my creative writing teacher in like my freshman year of college would have called it a signpost. Uh, just like get like giving you a, a clue as to how the rest of the album is going to play out. Yeah. Um, and it also ties into, you know, killing the self as to protect it from harm uh, because, you know, the, the character of Hamlet is intensely suicidal. Um, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think you're right. I, I, I think you're more right than I would say. That's cool. <laughs> oh, sick. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, like, again, like like a lot of this is just like uh, like. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. That sounds right. <laughs> and I'm not just like, maybe I'm just like being like, oh, that sounds cooler than what I maybe it it is. <laughs> but that sounds, that does sound right. Uh, like I, I do do a little like a little bit of foreshadow because I know how the record goes. Like I think of the record in terms of like arc before I write it. Um, so like, so like I do a bit of foreshadowing and all the, on all the albums with it, when it comes to the lyrics without sometimes without even realizing it. But yeah. Yeah. Um, which is cool because, I mean, as of now, we have a few more. But at the time this album came out, uh, this was like one of the few like true concept records in the genre. So mm -hmm. uh, I think it's cool that you were like conscious of it in that sense. Um, and then would you mind talking a little bit about the the end of the song, though? What would you do if someone hurt your best friend's feelings? Yeah, um, this is like an attempt at uh, like a. This album was really obsessed with the natural uh, and like think talking about like how our natures have been diverted by the environments in which we've grown up. Uh, so the concept of that discussion was to take uh, a, a child and then ask them their opinion about a subject that with adults is confusing uh, and and then have them answer it uh, in a way that w was like, quote unquote, more natural. Um, so like this was like at a time where, uh, again, like abuse and in leftist circles was being talked about a lot. Um, so uh, the point for me was like and like within those circles, there is just like a lot of discussion about like does this count as abuse? What is abuse? Um, you know, are the police right. abuse is the state abuse? Uh, and there was like just a lot of discourse around abuse. And so I was just like, this isn't that complicated. Like, let's ask a child. Uh, and, and, uh, so yeah, it was me, uh, my sibling and my sibling's husband, uh, having a like interview, like an interview that was that was just one of the questions that I asked in the interview, uh, and I just like had these this like questions that like started easy and then like rose in intensity and then came out uh, easy uh, again, uh, so that I could like get some good nuggets and that was one of the nuggets that um, I felt conceptually fit with the record. Hell yeah, um, I think it's real cool that you talked about like the naturalism aspect because. I think that ties into chewing wildflowers to numb the pain, that kind of like homeopathic uh, sort of thing. It ties into the naturalism. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And like, 
I was, I mean, uh, I make like, I make fun of my obsession with naturalism on this record with goodness, I think. Uh, and, uh, and like I was sort of, yeah, I just was obsessed with it. Like natural guitar sound, natural, what all this other stuff, like, like the room noise of me shouting as opposed to me shouting it directly into a mic because I wanted to sound natural. Uh, like I was like obsessive about it at the time. And, uh, I think it's kind of silly at this point because we're, you know, you're recording into like logic pro or whatever the hell and none of it's like recorded to tape or anything. So I just thought, uh, yeah, my obsession with it was silly, but that was what I was going for. Right. Yeah. Um, sick. I, I think that what makes this, uh, this record quote unquote emo rather than a concept record of any other genre is like that self-awareness aspect of it too. So life and drag just kind of like how I feel Wildflowers is a, is a side A opener. This is like a or a side side A closer. This is a side B opener, like for sure. Um, yeah. And uh, and uh, I think uh, we mess with the vinyl like the vinyl is a little bit different than the actual record. I think it starts with like a plug in guitar sound that we like separated into the first tracks. So when you listen to it on the vinyl, it like is a plug in guitar sound and then like like yeah it's punching in uh which i think is a silly a silly a silly music trick but it's yeah we did it <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, isn't there a guitar the isn't there like a guitar unplugging in the first song at the end of it or no there's some song Maybe. that ends with a guitar being unplugged there's a lot of guitar noise that was edited poorly on that record <laughs> so uh, <laughs> there could be like guitars uh, just drop out before the song's done. Like, <laughs> a friend of the pod, Josh, uh, listened to this song and then messaged me to say, "I think Christian should front a hardcore band." <laughs> this is the this is the quote unquote screamo song of the record. So this this is my personal favorite song on the album, uh, partially because of the sound and partially because of the theme. Um, was there a reason that you decided to like? put something so kind of like objectively heavy here like in this spot on the track list yeah it only makes sense if you do it in the middle uh right so like like an album the depending on where you're at in an album you get away with certain things and another if you put it at a different part in the album you can't get away with it um so like for example like the the alex g album rocket does the same thing where it's like you couldn't i don't know if you've listened to that record but there's a song called Mm -hmm. brick yeah. Uh, you could not put brick anywhere else in the record besides in the dead middle because like you the listener won't be able to contextualize what it is doing uh so so you sort of led into it like by the screaming at the end of among the wildflowers uh and yeah and then the other things that have come before it that allow you to scream i guess <laughs> um yeah and i think the fact that it follows like kind of the the album's like ostensible centerpiece like wildflowers is dead in the middle of the track list and then this song is right after that and wildflowers is extended and this is like punchy and to the point uh i think that adds a lot to it too um my favorite just word in the song is gender fucked like i started using that word immediately after i listened to it yeah um i learned it from hampshire college kids Sick. I always felt like the song was, I mean, now in the genre, I think a lot more people are talking openly about, uh, 
you know, the way they experience gender. But uh, prior to this, uh, no one had ever really like put it front and center uh, as like the main subject of a song. Um, and I felt like that had to have been like an extremely conscious choice. Um, just in, well, I mean, in aspect yeah. like visibility. Well, yeah, it's it's partially that. It's also just like a song literally about me being in drag. Like, like the actual subject of the song was I went to a party <laughs> and I was in drag and my best friend from high school who was like totally a sissy boy when we were in high school went to like woodworking school and came back like a total like chiseled bro like like bro like upstate new york bro and we were, i was just like what the fuck like i was just like <laughs> how how did like us both being like total sissies in high school become like this exact opposite direction uh and that was sort of a song about it was a song about my own interaction with gender sort of in a sense but not too much but but like uh i don't know it's also like a com like a maybe an iffy conversation point to say uh like like calling it life and dragon and i've had some conversations about that but but it, and it's not necessarily about being trans uh but it is about just sort of like the performance of gender and like that night uh specifically was like whoa like yeah this is this is not this person that i used to know and thus like this is such a weird felt like a song it felt like a story it, like felt too thematic too to be real i don't know yeah right like you wore the binary like a badge of fucking honor um that that feels like it's a direct comment on the story that you just told exactly yeah 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 Yeah. mistook pathetic for empathy that's a comment on toxic masculinity right yes yes okay because it's it's immediately preceded by that who taught you how to hate yourself uh like couplet which i think is uh, about you know like repressing the more feminine aspects of yourself in favor of being like a upstate New York dude bro. Yeah. Um, the yeah I I love this song too much I think to uh, be able to talk about it objectively. <laughs> I only got to um, yeah it's it's the entire song is just about that specifically. It's just uh, it's just all it is is like a song that takes place over the entire moment of me seeing this person, me walking up to them, me shaking their hand and them calling me a fag. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, all right. Uh, wild. Uh, yeah. Um, cast a stone at the phone and the stone hit me. It was sort of like that moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like we did talk about housebroken kind of before we even went into the track by track. Mm -hmm. Um, if even by accident, I feel like we actually covered a lot of the bases there. But uh, Christian, do you have like maybe anything else uh, you feel people should know about Housebroken? I mean, I know yeah. you said before you're like not proud, uh, not as proud of it as you are of the rest of the album, etc. Yeah, it was just the first. I think it was the first song lyrically that I had written for the album. I I, I say a lot of things about it, but like it's probably fine. Uh, like in a lot of ways but yeah it's just it's just a a song about how i had seen abuse being talked about within my circles and uh it in the end is a song for me about like like witnessing abuse uh and seeing how it plays out doesn't really matter like it doesn't matter to to sympathize with the person doing it uh 
if it's just continued harm that is going on. Uh, right. And, uh, that's sort of what I was just trying to capture with the song. And also just like, yeah, just, just how it can play, play out sometimes in which like, you know, you're, you're not, it's, it's not always also a, a moment in which uh, y- you can help. Sometimes you just straight can't, uh, you're sort of, sort of without your control because the person isn't desiring help. And that, and that goes for like abuse from like a person in like a relationship to somebody who, you know, is under the abuse of the state, which is sort of the context of the song that I was trying to say. Uh, it's just like somebody who's under the abuse of the state and the abuse of, uh, a lot of the sort of systems that we set up in society. Uh, and they're, uh, they're not wanting to, uh, to detach from that. Yeah. So it's a, it's about abuse kind of on this broader, more systematic scale. And I mean, uh, to me, it's not super surprising that people kind of took it on a more micro level to be about like, uh, domestic abuse. Um, and in a way it also is about that. I, I still am baffled that people thought that you were calling women dogs in this song. <laughs> oh, the people who said that are probably just people who like wanted to have a reason to like get mad at me. Uh, right. So I'm not even sure they really thought that. I just think that they like wanted to say it because it was like fun to be mad at me for whatever reason in their life. <laughs> yeah. And as for musically, I feel like this might be the most straightforwardly uh, within the genre of emo song on the record. Uh. Like, I feel like the guitar work is uh, pretty reminiscent of, like, early Mineral. Mm. And it it does kind of have that, like, build up, uh, like, classic sense of dynamics. I've always thought it was, like, one of the brighter spots, or one one of the few bright spots on the album, really. Because there's, like, the nice little breakdowny thing that's like very clean in the middle of it yeah um, it has a folky feel uh it has a bounce that's folky it has like chord progression that's folky uh it has a, an accordion solo <laughs> uh, <laughs> i think it's funny uh and uh interesting that you hear early mineral in it because i wouldn't have heard that i do i hear uh like even the breakdown that kyle mentioned uh reminds me of uh, like the beginning of Gloria a little bit, but I don't know. I'm, I might just be crazy. Um, honestly, my final thought on the song is that, uh, when I first listened to it, that I'll lash out, I'll, I'll bite back climax, like really got to me. Yeah. I think it's, it's cool that in an album that's kind of focused so much on rumination of pain and analyzing it, that you still had this moment of catharsis. Um, I feel like that was important to have like, in the in the end of like kind of a harrowing song yeah yeah i think a a lot of the album is is doomy uh and that's maybe another reason why i feel like it's a hiccup in the record uh just just mood wise but if but like again I, oh, you I wanted to keep you wanted to keep the miserable theme like well not that i wanted to keep <laughs> the miserable theme it's just like uh you know like uh just 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 uh to keep it cohesive with with uh with the idea uh, and some so part of the idea is uh, is like part of the just basic like like one word sentences that you could say about the part of the about what the record's about is just like it, it's harder than we can ever say it is, <laughs> uh, 
And uh, I think that song still captures that. But yeah. All right. So we're moving on to the penultimate uh, song on the album here, Discomfort Revisited, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a sequel to Southern Discomfort. And I think, Kyle, you wanted to ask this question, but it got, like, axed for whatever reason. But uh, we... We Are All Alone was taken down from Bandcamp. Oh, yeah. Uh, What's the story behind that? We had just some general band discussions uh, about, uh, like, what we wanted as a band to curate as, like, our material, I guess. Uh, And we thought that it was a better idea to have these albums that we felt proud of uh, than this kind of sloppy work that we started with as like a, like if we're going to curate, well, part of it's like now our entire band camp camp is uh, done through this like label thing that, so like Tiny Engines puts all our records up. uh, And I guess we maybe could put up, we are all alone, but uh it's basically all run through their band camp. Yeah, we it was sort of just a curation thought. Like like the the fans that like are that like we are all alone uh or like that are really into us and want to find our older stuff and listen to it, uh we'll find it and uh they'll be able to listen to it, but we we thought it was like a better a better way to present ourselves kind of cleanly as a band in this world where like it was moving towards where 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 our thing was moving towards uh i guess being a professional band and not like a band that was a local thing i guess uh we just wanted to we just wanted to keep it never, never goes out as like the beginning of our band and right. uh to to the, like the larger audience and it feels like people still forget about that record so so uh <laughs> uh so it, yeah so you haven't really like just disowned it but you just kind of made it a little tougher to find yeah we we think uh yeah exactly yeah i don't think it's i think i don't think it's bad i think actually there are some songs out that are pretty sick um but uh some of them are pretty silly and uh yeah and some ideas so like, conceptually like the hotel year ends with we are all alone and then the hotel year starts with it never goes out yeah and, i guess there there's we are all alone and then there was a two song demo and then there was uh and then there was it never goes out, and uh, uh, I guess I guess it doesn't matter, but yeah, yeah, you could say that the hotelier begins with uh, the hotelier begins with uh, <laughs> it never goes out. All right, so moving on to the song itself, uh, it uh, it feels like it, it might be about the same person that your deep rest is about, but I. Not, like, in the reality sense, but more in just, like, a thematic sense. Uh, Because it also is, despite the fact that it is, like, musically very melancholic and a little bit doomy, uh, it kind of has this bittersweet, uplifting message to it um, about moving on from a relationship and being able to stand and move forward on your own mm-hmm. um and maybe maybe like 
like in my mind, this is kind of like an alternate reality of how the situation from your deep rest could have uh, played out. Right. Yeah. And because because you're right, it is about that person. Uh, and because, uh, as we talked about in your deep rest, uh, that person is still alive and doing well. Um, yeah, that, that song is about the same person and was sort of the reality of how it played out as opposed to your deep rest, which was sort of the like this likely could have played out uh this way uh situation yeah um correct sick um uh asked to be admitted and they put a lock on your door um i I feel like this might be less of uh saying that this person was institutionalized like in a material way and more about kind of uh maybe hiding themselves from uh, external forces. And that kind of ties into the later lyric about protect your pressure points that I refuse to press against. And uh, to, to me, this song just... Uh, it, feel, it feels a lot about the lengths of a, like emotional self-harm a person can go to when they don't want to deal with uh, the problems in their own life. Yeah, uh... I don't know that I'd call it not wanting to deal with the problems in your own life as much as I would like, uh, uh, like sort of like what, what felt at the time, just sort of like an inability, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Can you talk about the line, uh, project the voice that I found for you? Ooh, interesting. Uh, 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 <laughs> literally a contra- an actual controversial line that, uh, uh, so like, uh, me and that person actually got in a fight about that <laughs> because we were like, because I was like, yeah, I definitely worded that wrong. And they were like, yeah, it made me feel bad. And I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but I guess uh, the idea would be better presented, uh, like uh, project the voice that I found with you, I guess, uh, uh, would be better uh, because it sounds less like I'm saying that like, I did everything for this person. Like I was, I was like the only thing that, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, I can yeah. see how it could be because the way it's worded, it could be like misconstrued as, uh, maybe like you propping this person up, uh, or be like being the reason that they, they found themselves in, or is it something along those lines? I feel like we're, we're both getting at the same thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, so, so so that's 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 mostly what it is, yeah. And then I felt weaker when I bent, beaten to the end, folded on folding on myself too damaged to mend. Um, so there's this there's this contrast that you are kind of building in these last lines uh, between the narrator who is bending and beaten, and then the subject who is who was already beaten down and is further hurting themselves by quote dragging from the arm. And I kind of, I kind of wanted to ask you to uh, dissect that a little bit for me because I, I still am having a hard time parsing it. Yeah. So it was just a relationship in which like it felt as though the things that I was doing weren't working. Uh, it felt as though, uh, in a similar sense to like uh, maybe taught how to swim, never taught how to drown. 
Uh, it was like I felt okay. yeah. like I was being pulled under. Uh, and I was being like brought to this place where I was now being like harmed uh, and my mental state was being like like pretty destroyed, like attempting to support this person. Well, uh, like the closer that we came to like the same point, the easier it was becoming uh, for that person. Uh, and yet uh, the harder it was becoming for me. Uh, so, uh, that was, that was, uh, you know, uh, part of the reality of it. And there's also just like tons of general, like most of the trauma of this situation I worked through by writing this record, but there's like just tons of trauma from that situation that like my body has endured, uh, and, uh, like greatly affected how I engage in relationships moving forward from that. And, how I think about how to support somebody who uh, is having like a situation this rough in their lives and like thinking about like what actions enable that uh, and what actions, like what actions enable them to like externalize their uh, situation onto other people in a way that harms them and like how to set boundaries for yourself around what you can and can't engage with. Uh, So, uh, yeah, so there's just like, it's it's kind of talking about how that was sort of externalized onto me, uh, and uh, and how like I wish them well, but uh, can't continue uh, to be a part of it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That kind of clears up the smudges that were around that that area for me. It kind of makes it clear that the song is about uh, sort of the search for self empowerment that comes. Uh, in a relationship after kind of breaking uh, maybe codependency isn't the right word, but that, that sort of cycle of uh, enabling and dragging down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it is codependency and it's codependency with like coupled with extreme mental illness. Yeah. All right. So a melancholic song that, I mean, uh, that explanation just makes it feel both more uplifting and more heartbreaking at the same time. So uh, good work. Yeah. yeah. That person's doing great, though, now. They, like, run That's marathons a- and work at a bank and do do cool shit. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Proud of them. So now we move into the finale of the album, uh, Dendron. Something I think is cool about this, this song is that it starts off a little bit faster paced and then it kind of has that break in the middle and uh and has this kind of like real uh shimmering crescendo climax sort of thing and i feel like that was also a conscious choice to kind of end this record with a with a huge moment like that something that kind of almost feels euphoric in a way Mm -hmm. yeah uh yeah i think part of it is that it separates like the song into being like it, it like the song the song has an outro but the outro of the song sort of serves as like an outro to the album just in sort of how it's separated which is pretty nice and uh uh yeah the the pacing of that song is pretty pretty i think it's cool too <laughs> <laughs> i love that uh couplet we develop mental pictures and we're following our fathers down the drain mm-hmm. um which feels kind of, uh, 
I I don't necessarily know if I would uh, say that that line is about toxic masculinity at first blush, but it is kind of about, um, you know, there's that theory of cyclical generations, uh, the way that the way our parents lived is mapped out onto us and we follow kind of that structure. Right. Um, and then it follows through into, do you recall the imagery from when I drove you away through others rose prescription lens? Uh, so there's that combination of a path that's already mapped out and then prescription lens rather than just the phrase rose tinted glasses kind of implies a, a choice to, to follow those paths more than um, something that's unconscious. Yeah, let's see. That sounds right. Also, I forget. I'm trying to remember uh, exactly what I had meant by by specifically adding prescription. Uh, and uh, like uh, sometimes I think that it has to do uh, with because I forget because it was twenty like twelve or something that I was writing that record. Uh, okay. But but, uh, but uh, I think that it had something to do with like drug induced uh re- re- like rose colored glasses. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um I really love the centerpiece lyric of the song. The part of your charm was the way you'd push me from all the traps that I just couldn't see. I figures the one that was there to have tripped you up to be the one that was set there by me. Yeah. Um so the this that lyric is about self-destructiveness right i mean elaborate but yeah okay i'll elaborate um (laughs) self-destructiveness uh in the sense that when you're kind when you're kind of depending on a person to steer you in the right direction uh the tendency to kind of like lean on that person becomes uh, a wrong direction in and of itself, tying back to the codependency theme from Discomfort Revisited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, part of it's part of it's about uh, enabling uh, and uh, and yeah, being an enabling force in somebody's life that can do harm to them. And uh, yeah, just a, just a thing that I I mean, I work with teens uh, also in my life and I see those sort of patterns. It's like uh, you know, people who sometimes are attempting to help people, but don't really know what help looks like, uh, because they don't, you know, they don't really understand what, what a person's situation is or a person's struggle is, uh, yet they're trying to like perform help for somebody, uh, can just be be sort of an enabling thing. Uh, yeah, you can just sort of be enabling somebody to continue their, their cycles that are harming them. Uh, and sometimes uh, uh, disrupting those cycles is the way to 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 do it. And and codependency is big uh, is is like kind of a big theme on this record without me really understanding anything about codependency at the time of writing it. Um, and codependency is almost simply that, and uh, which is which is allowing somebody allowing somebody to continue the cycles that are harming themselves and all their relationships uh, by not breaking someone's cycle and instead uh, allowing them to continue in it. Okay. Um, 
And then there are, there's two lines in here that I feel kind of serve to wrap up each branch of this record. There's the political branch and the personal branch. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the line that wraps up the political branch is, uh, I cut off my arm at the bone in solidarity. Capital teaches you that there's less when you share. Yeah. Uh, which I've heard, I've actually heard like people, especially on the emo subreddit, uh, make the argument that you can be apolitical or even right wing and still enjoy uh, this record. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. But to me, uh, a line like this is so kind of explicitly political that I feel like it should be almost impossible. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's like a jab at the like that was like uh that was the like talking point in politics at the time around socialism this is like tea party era uh you know politics and uh yeah so so like the idea that the like economic idea that there's just less resources when you share things which is i think a silly idea but makes sense when it's literally about cutting off your arm and giving it to somebody <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. so it's just kind of like a jab at the at the at the like yeah at that sentiment uh which yeah i just thought it was funny i don't know <laughs> uh i mean it is it is funny because of that like juxtaposition um but also it kind of has a a bit of a greater resonance in the context of a record with songs like Your Deep Breast and House Broken that are about kind of these systemic issues that uh, serve to undermine people's mental health, especially in working class situations. Mm. Um, And so I feel like this kind of ties up that theme rather nicely of you know, community is sort of where we need, sort of where we need to go, in order to solve uh, a lot of the problems endemic uh, within, like a system that puts too much of the pressure on the individual. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, uh, and then and then like that line coupled with the line a couple later, which is "Tell me again that it's all in my head." But uh, that's the that was the other line I was going to bring up. I feel like that ties up the personal branch of the album too. Yeah, and yeah, it ties them literally together, uh, sort of, which is to say that you know, all of these things that are we are existing within, uh, all, like all of all sorry, all all of these like sort of things that we think of are as individual, uh, think like that pertain simply to the individual cannot be removed from the society at large. Uh, there's too many factors that are going into why all these things occur in our lives and uh, to completely divorce them from the world at large uh, seems like wild and wrong uh, and uh, and is like this sort of, I don't know if gaslighting is the right word, but it's like this sort of like continued lie that is told to the individual to like, make it their responsibility to fix which in some ways it is but um you know sure but yeah i'd say that's cultural gaslighting for sure yeah like in a like in a broad societal sense yeah um and to kind of uh state the unstated obvious uh 
it's easy for an outside observer to say, oh, that's all in your head, but it's harder for someone in the situation where they feel their arm cut off at the bone or they feel the noose on the collarbone or the gun in the small of their back to to say that, oh, this is all in my head when the violence of the system is kind of directly hurting them in that moment. Right. Uh, and in their entire lives and in exactly. sort of how, you know, how they view the world, how their world is shaped. And yeah, that, that sort of like ties up basically the theme of the record. Yeah. Which is just simply a, um, uh, yeah, it just is going through all of these different, uh, scenarios that I've had in my early twenties or late teens, uh, that sort of showed me that, uh, um, most of these things are connected to a political overarching, uh, like way the world works. Uh, and yeah, yeah, basically that, I guess. Yeah. And then to kind of cap it all off, uh, like in an aesthetic sense, there's that aside engraved in the stone, which, you know, ends the record off with the strong imagery of death, mm -hmm. um, which is just like a big, huge mic drop moment <laughs> uh your home like no places there is dead long live home like no places there. <laughs> yeah no i mean it's just like yeah there's just it just feels like when these this like cultural gaslighting thing is just like pushing someone to this point of just like what do i have to say like it just say it just seemed like the, because the dominant narrative was so much so placed on the individual and like to a certain extent still is um, <clears throat> as we like as our the, like society atomizes people even more from each other even with like social media and stuff and with like the way that mental health is coming up now it's just like oh it's like an individual problem we have to find the individuals who are you know mentally unwell and uh you know, like fix them. Uh, it, it, you know, it's still completely divorced from the fact that like uh, a lot of our society is what creates these situations and, uh, and has, has no, has no overarching view of how we can change society in order to uh, yeah. In order to curb mental health. Yeah. Um, I think one of the, one of the biggest unspoken themes in the record is this kind of parallel uh, between uh, the way that capital treats the worker and the way that uh, the societal structure under capital treats uh, the person suffering from mental health. That alienation is the same, and it all ties back to that kind of same uh, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps narrative. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's Dendron. That's home like no places there. That's uh, everybody. Please read Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. That is the <laughs> overriding message of this podcast episode. Um, yeah, there is like a lot of discussions that I had had that had sort of led up to the aesthetic of the album, too. Uh, uh, there was like a, a conversation that I had had with a friend of mine, Tom. Uh, we were talking about this punk album that existed that I can't actually find, but but Tom 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 went to Tom was like a Tom was like an art person uh, went to school for uh, arts management uh, and uh, we were talking about this punk album that was called like the Backs of Suburban Houses and 
the art of home like noblesse is there is is ripping it off kind of uh so like oh sick the idea the idea is that the front of a suburban house is the is representative of uh the face uh that a person from that area of their life puts on uh in the back of a suburban house is the actuality of like how closed off they are from the world so if you like look at the front there's like tons of giant windows and a big door and like all of this like stuff going on but usually the back it's just like tiny windows uh <laughs> and like like uh and like is really closed off like there's no light that comes in from the back of the house uh and it all comes in from the front and it was just an interesting uh yeah just an interesting thing to think about and uh and that that's sort of like the idea with like uh and it's and it changed a lot of my thoughts about like sort of how you're how we're brought up uh like the you know little houses this that song sort of also mm-hmm. uh sums up that idea and uh yeah just sort of how um how suburbia is aesthetically and uh i don't know i think i think it's under undervalued how much the environment in which we live and the things that we see every day control like how we interact with the world and how we see the world. And I think growing up in suburbia is so uh, sterile uh, that we, it, it, ha- it has completely shaped who I am as a person, but uh, yeah, it is, uh, it is, it has a big weight on our head about how we think about how the world is. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to, to sum that up as well sick thank you yeah um and with that i have yeah i was about to say with that i'm gonna throw that back to kyle (laughs) yeah i I wanted to reference a couple of things that were written about i think both of them were like ian cohen i think in the review for this he uh brought up some reference to like trees and nature and then he did that one piece that was like about the hotel you're reading or is uh leading emo's like green era and I guess I do see that. Um, do you have any comments on like, or is that like an underlying imagery or something that you like to write about? Yeah, for sure. Uh, simply because I'm interested in, I mean, as, as you hear through the lyrics, like not only am I discussing like the natural, but the juxtaposition of the natural versus the disturbed. It's sort of like a, it's a, like a Taoist idea um, that maybe I didn't understand as a Taoist idea on home like no places there, but like understood it way more going into goodness, um, mm-hmm. is just sort of like, um, where, where our natures are, uh, and how they're diverted and how they're disturbed and, uh, and thinking a lot about like, well, if this isn't a more natural rhythm cycle situation, you know, structure or whatever, how would this play out? Um, and, and it has to do with literally, the fact that I grew up uh, in Charlton, which is a town that is ex- the exact middle point between uh, suburban, like Worcester County, and uh, rural Western Mass. Uh, like Sturbridge, one town over, is considered Western Mass. Uh, and uh, so, and the area in which I grew up in was mostly developed suburbia. So, so. I had woods right in my backyard uh, and the woods and nature was like a big like like thing for me to be in uh, and be around while also like 
in a suburban town. So yeah, so 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 both conceptually, uh, natures and uh, yeah, in in reality, tangibly, nature uh, have just been big in how I uh, contextualize what's going on in the world. Yeah, I can I can kind of see that friction between naturalism and suburbia, even with home like no places there, because uh, you know you have like the ending of Among the Wildflowers, which you stated earlier was like one of the purest distillations of naturalism on the record, uh, kind of juxtaposed with you know the imagery of people maybe like in working class situations who are uh, struggling with their material conditions, there's kind of that friction between the two. Yeah. Or even just the opening line of the entire album, which is open the curtains, oh, singing, yeah. tell me to tear the buildings down. <laughs> yeah. That too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. Um, and also just like it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. There's, there's like, there is also just like class, uh, conflict, I guess, uh, in suburbia too. Like, like there's, there's like not, I don't, I don't like to think of, uh, suburbia as like a thing that is like, like, sorry, I'm being slow, but, uh, it's not like statically middle-class. Is that what you're driving at? Right. Yes. Like there's yeah. there's like middle class suburbia, and then there's like working class people living alongside uh, these people who are living in suburbia, who like might, who are just kind of like attempting to keep up with the Joneses, sort of to like escape their class situation instead of, uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's something that goes on in suburbia that's maybe not thought about as much, except in like maybe like a teen comedy, like a teen movie or something, where like. Oh, we we realize that this person in suburbia is actually poor, uh, yet hanging out with us. Whoa, uh, you know, like I don't know if you, uh, you've seen that trope, but uh, yeah, it's it's much. Yeah, more... she's all that is sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that that sort of, I think that's usually uh, an idea that's like reserved for like the cities and like how certain areas of the city are like, you know, there's like uh, great wealth directly next to great poverty or like like massive poverty um but that that sort of like also exists in suburbia yeah yeah uh i grew up in las vegas and uh (laughs) well i i feel like that's kind of (coughs) las vegas is kind of uh like the epitome of exactly what you're talking about because there's a lot of like class resentment and class envy in Las Vegas because a lot of the suburbs um, you have like these big almost mansion-esque houses right next to uh, houses that are literally like government-built projects and all the kids are going to the same high school Uh Uh, and that's something that I almost never see people talk about so thanks for bringing it up yeah yeah and Las Vegas is Las Vegas is wild. Like, uh, I, <laughs> we played a show on the Jimmy World Tour in Las Vegas. And I don't know why, but my banter went to, why the hell are all of you living in Las Vegas? Like, what's the, <laughs> like, what are you doing here? Like, the, weirdest... oh, I can explain that. Yeah, go on. Uh, um, so there are two types of people who, sorry, three types of people who live in Las Vegas. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the the first type is people who come from old Vegas. Uh, you know, the people who come from families that have been there since the city's inception. Yeah. Um, we're kind of, uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, old money. Um, the second type is California rejects. Wait, uh, let's let's go back for a second again. I'm in, just because I'm interested. Uh, is oh, there sure. like some like uh, crime like uh, relationship to that? Like 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 I know people. There are people. I live near Providence, uh, and like, am in underground poker games. So like, I hear about like people with money from around here who are uh, who come from like mob families and stuff like that. Is that is that a thing of like old Vegas? Do you know? Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of like mob descendants, but it has a lot less impact on people's quality of life than you would think. Okay. Uh, like I once dated a person whose grandpa had like serious mafia ties and uh, financially uh, their their family wasn't actually doing so great. Uh, so, you know, there's a there's a lot less of like a like a trickle down effect than you would think. Most of that money kind of stays within uh, the original circle and doesn't move beyond that. Right. Um, and. So, something that you you just brought this up and it kind of triggered another thought. Uh, I can kind of contrast it with uh, Chicago, another city that I lived in. Uh, the way that crime is talked about in Chicago versus the way that crime is talked about in Las Vegas is like absolutely mind-boggling to me, and I think it has a lot to do with the the fact that when crime is committed by uh, white people there's a tendency to romanticize it um uh-huh. meanwhile uh in chicago where you know the big mainstream narrative is all the uh all the black crime that goes on there despite the fact that it's committed for the exact same reasons um and the money goes back to the same type of people who are controlling the city uh, the narrative surrounding those two things is very different. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the second type of people who live in Las Vegas uh, is, you know, California rejects people who uh, tried to make it in L.A. and couldn't and then bounced to Las Vegas because buying houses in Las Vegas is actually shockingly cheap. Um, uh-huh. And then the third type is people from the East and the Midwest who... Uh, came out here, uh, gambled a lot, uh, lost all their money, and then got stuck. <laughs> Word. Yeah. Word. Yeah. I know a lot of people who live in Las Vegas uh, because I am now deeply embedded in the poker world. Uh, right. And like, some of them are like, move out to Vegas. And I'm like, sounds like the loneliest thing I could do. <laughs> like, uh, like, yeah. Yeah. It seems like a, seems like a, I guess a good place if you want to be a professional poker player, but a bad place if you want to be a professional poker player and have a rather lively social network. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible city, uh, and the police force is one of the most oppressive in the country, and that also never gets talked about. Um, Wild. I have a lot of family in the who are currently in or have been in the police force in Las Vegas. Uh, one of my aunts literally once told me that police brutality does not exist. So huh. Jesus. that's that's the mind frame that people are coming from out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's like 
that's like a uh, a cop thing uh, everywhere though. And but uh, one thing that I found interesting when I was in Vegas last was I saw so many people driving around with no license plates. Uh, I was like, wow, like like I I saw no like very few cops on the highways and lots of people driving around with no license plates. And I was like, damn, there's got to be a way that these people are getting away with this. Like if they're just doing it in broad daylight. Like this. Yeah. Uh, def- definitely depends where you are. There's places okay. that, yeah, have lower police presence like Summerlin and then places that have much higher police presence like the area surrounding the university, which is kind of historically disenfranchised. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So I have very little time left. Um, just to wrap everything up, um, I just kind of wanted to talk about like the impact that the record has obviously had. Like, uh, spin that list named it as like the top emo revival record and stuff. And I'm sure Christian, you get a lot of people telling you like this album, you know, changed me, saved me, etc. Were were you anticipating it or anything? Uh, I don't know. I just like tried real hard. Uh, so, uh, that's usually what I, what I think is, I don't know that I was anticipating it being like groundbreaking. Cause also I didn't anticipate that the genre of music would like matter. Uh, you know, like I, I was making these albums because it's the only way I know how to write for the most part. And, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have anticipated it just because I don't think anyone, I didn't think anyone would really care outside of like the DIY scene, which was, uh, large, large at the time, but uh, still, uh, I just tried real hard, and that's all I really thought. I mean, did you think writing about these topics and stuff, like, did you see that coming, where people were going to be, like, latching onto it so um, deeply? Uh, um, I thought it could either have gone that way, or it could have been, like, people being like, this is too much uh like chill um uh, because like like all of these things are just like you know this is like again like in the the tumblr 2012 2013 era so like uh this is like pre people talking about this stuff a lot you know there's like you you'd have to like cure like if you go on like people are talking about this stuff a lot more now than they were then and like it was really and thus it was really interesting to me because it was like new conversations being had about these topics I agree. uh so so i was just excited to write about it uh, uh because it was like on my mind all the time tumblr era 2012 uh i was like a i was like a big tumblr political not 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 popular i didn't have a ton of followers but i was just like big into the, like the the tumblr politics of the time uh and uh and uh yeah, all these conversations were just interesting to me. Uh, yeah. Uh, I feel like something that's interesting is uh, the impact that this album has had kind of in things that are socially acceptable to talk about in emo. And one thing that I've noticed is a lot of people are willing to talk about uh, kind of, you know, uh, gender issues or like issues of identity in in that lane uh and a lot less people are willing to talk about you know class conflict which i think is uh maybe even more representative on this record um yeah you... um part of that is part of that is uh uh there's still also alongside that there's still like people aren't 
people aren't talking about race as much as I think they are gender or sexuality. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that too. Uh, yeah, and that's that's just the nature of. Uh, that's part of the nature of the scene in general. Uh, like, yeah. uh, a lot of kids in emo are white and a lot of kids in emo are, uh, uh, middle class. And a lot of kids in emo and in, uh, in emo, um, are also queer, uh, and, uh, you know, have a complex relationship with their gender. Uh, and, and, uh, I know that there are pockets within the, in the within the scene of people that come from a same class background or a same race background that uh, thus end up uh, hanging out and talking about this stuff together. Um, but yeah, yeah, it it will be it it is it is a thing that uh, it is, and it is a capitalism thing too. It's just like now that capitalism has accepted that like queer artists uh, or queer people have a place in capitalism uh then it becomes easier to talk about uh but also at the expense of like sort of the yeah yeah the revolutionary aspect of it right uh, quote unquote yeah Yeah, rainbow capitalism for sure yeah um yeah just it's just more people that are now uh and 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 then sorry and to set this up like this is sort of like a thing that i had talked about with a friend of mine uh, about like sort of what happened with uh, with the scene and with DIY and with the industry, which is just like uh, you know like pre 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 like in the two thousands there weren't like there weren't many people that were queer and making music and I'm not even like I like I think about a band like the Drums and like the Drums are like a, like a, a, a like a project that was like kind of explicitly queer like the front person is queer or some or is gay uh and uh and like i don't remember like knowing like flat knowing that that was a thing but i'm just thinking like there's a lot more queer artists there's a lot more like like the the image is more queer like i know i'm not gonna say who but there's like a industry plant artist who I looked at and I was like, oh, this person's cute and queer looking, but not explicitly queer, probably an industry plant. And then I looked them up uh, and I asked some friends and they are. Uh, And I uh, uh, was like, yeah, this is like a thing. It's like when some when they're making an artist, like it helps for them to be in one of these like marginalized identities, because now that is a thing that is sold by the music industry, uh, whereas it wasn't prior. And like part of the strength that the music scene had is that they were boosting artists that the industry wasn't uh, of marginalized identities uh, and when uh, those groups no longer felt financially like like that the that the DIY scene could financially support them uh, they had to like turn to something else uh, and and the industry was like there with spo- sponsorship money to pay them and I don't think that it's like a thing that I would say uh, uh, is wrong of them to choose to do. Uh, but now, uh, there are people that, uh, are, it's, it's just, it just, there was a lot of momentum that was carried by queer people, by people of color, by women in the DIY scene that, uh, that, that energy is now dispersed, uh, to also into the industry and has been individualized to like individual artists and, 
all this other stuff. And I think that's part of the reason uh, why uh, there has been more, uh, yeah, less, less, less uh, infrastructure in DIY. And that's more a thing of like, there's not enough money for artists uh, in, in the world to like really allow people to decide between whether they want to support uh, like grassroots music or, uh, or the industry and, uh, and also just a failure of the DIY scene to support those artists of marginalized identities uh, when they were fulfilling their roles in the DIY scene. Uh, Mm. That's, that's just something I wanted to touch on because I, I think it's an important conversation that people, uh, aren't talking about uh and like the state of music is really strange right now and i think that has a big thing to do with it yeah 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 that's something i've been thinking about a lot lately and thank you for articulating it Mm -hmm. you've you've been doing a real good job of uh articulating a lot of things that we've been driving at on this podcast for a long time and just kind of putting it in like uh real real clear terms so yeah real like academic terms really because we were just talking about like yeah uh how do we interact with it and and like be proactive about it because there's so much like fake fake politics like i don't know you like take a side and then you don't do anything else yeah and i think part of that is like and it happens a lot in music uh and something uh, sorry i know that you don't have that much time so yeah um but I'm going to elaborate on this still. Uh, <laughs> I had a I had a conversation with my friend Olivia, who's a musician, plays in a band called Wrong. Is the vocalist in a band called Wrong, and uh, uh, we were talking about how like there's a lot of like anarchist influence with regards to like uh, transformative justice that is now sometimes called callout culture, uh, uh, and 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 mostly called that because of how the music scene has used it, uh, but. Because there's like there's a lot of anarchist things that are like anarchist influenced ideas that have like found its way in, uh, and but it's being used by people who uh, aren't anarchists, uh, don't have an interest in community, and or don't have like uh, like religion to like morally guide them and in doing so. So like there's a lot of people who are using these things but don't care about like community. Like they care about having access to the infrastructure of a music scene uh like like the like the social or like the like the general access to infrastructure that that gives them and thus some like sort of social power um but they don't care about like community as much so like they use these uh these out they use like the scene as like a way to wield their power more than they do to like have a community uh, and sure uh, leftist concepts uh kind of co-opted by liberals for sure right yes liberals who have like wh- whether they know it or not like power interest yeah exactly yeah i'm so happy we had you on <laughs> same <laughs> yeah well i'm i'm glad that the people that are interviewing me uh i get to say these things and have it be understood too so thank you for that <laughs> hundred percent that this is actually like the part that I was like most looking forward to was talking about the politics. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Kyle, do you have to go? Yeah, really? I should be going. Um, so just to wrap it up, 
Christian, thank you for coming on. This is definitely like a dream interview for us and probably people who listen to this podcast because they obviously voted and love this record. Great. Yeah, no problem. Uh, let me know when you want to talk about goodness. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we have just run into the problem.